You're listening to The Conversation. Well, we've had eight phenomenal interviews. Yep. I feel like I say this every time, but this will be like nothing else we've heard. Yeah, absolutely. Today we're talking to Dr. Timothy Morton, who for a few more days is in Davis, Mm -hmm. and then we'll be heading down to Rice. Rice University in Texas. Dr. Morton was a recommendation from a friend. And a lucky recommendation that was. Yes, there's no way in hell we'd have found him. No. You know, you mentioned a while ago the idea of the polymath. Yeah. He's a polymath. Yes. Like, we have not met yet, we've corresponded, and we've done a lot of research on his work. This guy brings so many different fields of thought together. His background is in English. He's studied Shelley, but he's also studied sort of the social construction of diet. He's studied ecology Published and two ideas. Two books of, on ecology. Yeah, two books. And he's thought a lot about nature and the arbitrary divide between man and nature and the ramifications of that. And he's also put forth a theory of hyper objects. I'm just going to throw this one over to you because I'm still trying to get my head around this so I can ask at least one intelligent question tomorrow. As far as I can tell, hyperobjects are objects that exist on such large scale, be that temporal or spatial, that they become... You can't talk about them in the same way you talk about other objects. And using the term object here sort of broadly, like maybe call them entities or okay, even concepts. Global warming being... One of the big examples that he gives for a hyperobject. Okay. Or plutonium radiation. So these seem like they're very rooted in a modern technological world, at least in terms of our understanding that they're even out there, right? right? They're objects that need a new vocabulary that really stretch the boundaries of our understanding as small, organic people. So it was his work in hyperobjects that led him to fall in with this group of people working in what they call object-oriented ontology. That sounds like a rough group. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think they, they probably have satin gang jackets. And, uh, <laughs> they actually bowl together on weekends. Yeah, you know, if you, if you piss them off, they'll... Deconstruct well, you? <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I think we're going to get from him, I, th- I think he's going to throw our distinction of the anthropocentric and biocentric viewpoints i think he's going to throw those out the window and i think he's going to be arguing that both of those are too shallow and that everything is related to everything else and that seems to be the fundamental idea behind object-oriented ontology this is going to be a wild ride for talking about where do you get values yes in this in this universe especially is this purely physicalist this seems very much secular and physicalist to me mm-hmm. i'll be curious to know how he addresses the idea of value and morality if we're thinking about new things like hyperobjects, how do other people join that conversation? Is that conversation even something we can have? This connects to everything, like a hyperobject. <laughs> this is going to be so awesome, and I'm, I wish I was going with you. I think this is one we just need to plunge into and yep. see where it goes. Yeah, I think we're out of our depth here, but I think it's going to be fun. And I think fun. it's possible that almost everyone listening will be out of their depth here. So I'll try to ask the dumb questions for all of us. And we'll see where it goes. My background. Um, dubious. <laughs> I am a professor of English literature and also of ecology and philosophy. So I'm, I'm your actual academic, you know. I'm, I'm sort of trying to talk to people who are not academics. Sometimes I, it succeeds because I actually manage to get in front of a group of people 
who aren't actually students or colleagues or people who've come to hear me give a lecture. And I think it's very important at this moment for anybody with a functioning nervous system to be able to say some words about the ecological emergency that we're in. You know, I mean, my take on it right now is that we've been in it for a very long time. We really have to uh, make a very profound adjustment of how we see ourselves. And um, because, I mean, this is the thing, 1790-ish, human beings begin to deposit a thin layer of carbon in Earth's crust, and this marks the beginning of what is now called the Anthropocene by the geologist Paul Crutzen. It's now a pretty well-established fact. And it's this moment in which, if you think about it, human history intersects with geological time, which is tectonic plates, lava, evolution, billions of years, as opposed to just a few thousand years, if you're looking at, quote, the history of civilization, which would be kind of agriculture. So there's a big problem, which is that we've, we've actually now directly intervened in Earth's crust. We've caused this kind of collision between human history and geological time. You know, I guess my, my job, if it is a job, is to get people over the sort of speed bump of denial. I think, you know, when something as colossal as this happens, when we realize actually that something as colossal as this has already happened, that it was always already the case that we were standing on Earth despite some of our philosophical views, right? But it was always already the case that we had directly intervened in Earth's crust, even at the very moment at which Western philosophy is saying, oh, you can't talk about reality, you can only talk about your access to reality. Um, I see these things as sort of two sides of the same coin. It seems to me that in that situation, what humans are going through mostly is the denial phase of grief, because we're basically admitting that we kind of lost something that we didn't ever really have in the first place, which was this external nature as this kind of solid, stable, secure environment that acted as a kind of background against which our actions became meaningful. So I wrote these couple of books. The first one was Ecology Without Nature, and the idea of that was that basically if we want ecological awareness, then actually we have to drop the idea of nature, which is not the same as actual coral and bunny rabbits. It's just a human concept that distinguishes between humans and non-humans, and that is precisely the problem right there. We think that we're really different from other beings, and we think that we have some kind of pampered special access, or the flip side, we're some kind of weird, evil, demonic thing that the rest of reality is totally bland and neutral or whatever, or good. Either way around, there's some kind of human specialness. That's clearly part of the problem. What is the crisis of wow. the present? Wow, what is the crisis of the present? Wow. Gosh, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, in a way... Um, and that's, of course, assuming that there is one, no, right? right on. And I, I think a I lot totally of people would actually it. dispute that idea right on, on fundamental grounds. Right on. But even if you don't think there is one, you still might think that there is a crisis as to what constitutes the present. I mean, even if you don't think that there is a crisis, it's because you precisely think that the present is not affected yet by something that you could consider to be a crisis, right? So even for that kind of person, there is a crisis in terms of the need to assess or reassess or kind of evaluate or discriminate, discern what this thing called present is, right? And it pertains directly to this ecological issue. Does present mean you and me sitting here in this hour-long window talking? Does it mean today? Does it mean this week? Does it mean the early 21st century? Or does it mean the Anthropocene, a, a geological period that we can horrifyingly date to 1790? This is a sort of uncanny 
accuracy, or does it mean the last 3,000 years of human history that have been predominantly agricultural, agriculture being responsible for an embarrassingly large amount of global warming carbon emissions? So precisely the problem, at whatever scale you think it, is a problem of the present. What is this thing called present? And it's a problem in another sense. In a funny way, we have too much presence on the one hand because the mercury doesn't go anywhere when you throw it in the bin. You know it goes to the dump. You know it seeps into the groundwater. Then you know it comes back into your body. You know it goes into some fish or some bird. So there's no way anymore. So there's too much intimacy. And at the very same time, there's also a sense of unreality. These two things go together, I feel. They go together to make this really uncanny sensation that I think is the key of ecological awareness. I don't think ecological awareness is a sort of happy, happy, joy, joy, we are all earthlings thing. I think it's actually a kind of uncanny realisation. On the one hand, there's no way. On the other hand, what the hell is this? Um, this is not my beautiful waste. This is not my beautiful <laughs> toilet. This is not my beautiful Pacific Ocean. You know, all of a sudden these things become somehow not exactly what we thought they were. Why is it uncanny? Because we can't jump outside the system that we're in, right? Say, for example, human beings decide, you know what, the Earth is totally screwed, we're going to go to Mars. What do they have to do as soon as they get to Mars, as Kim Stanley Robinson, the novelist, has so beautifully demonstrated? They have to create the biosphere. They have exactly the same problem as they did on Earth, only magnified, because now they have to build it from scratch. They haven't gone away. They've still got the same problem. And furthermore... There's no reverse gear to knowing, and so you can't sort of unknow global warming facts. You can't unknow the half-life of plutonium, which is 24.1 thousand years. That's the other thing. The present now includes the far future. I mean, 100,000 years from now, 7% of global warming effects will still be around, slowly being absorbed by igneous rocks, right? And then there's a something like a 30,000-year time scale where you've got 25% of global warming effects... I mean, can you remember what life was like? 30,000 years ago, that's when they were doing the Chauvet cave paintings and that Werner Herzog movie, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. That's the timescale of the half-life of plutonium or 25% of global warming will still be around for 30,000 years, right? So all of a sudden, we've got these huge timescales. Now, that when you operate at that timescale, the following two things will be correct. Number one, nobody will be meaningfully related to you. Right, so no being existing then will be meaningfully related to Angus or Tim. Number two, every single thing I do, including lifting up a glass of water, will have a profound impact that magnifies over time. So that's uncanny, right? Because on the one hand, there's nothing like you in the future to speak of. On the other hand, absolutely everything is influenced by the tiniest little thing you did. So we've got a big problem. You know, it's, it's, it's bigger than a just a social problem or just a psychological problem actually it's a philosophical ontological problem to do with what the hell is is being actually and what does existing mean and what is this present right this is why as soon as i hear this phrase crisis of the present i think yeah totally it's a subjective genitive not just objective genitive it's not that there we know what the present is and there's a crisis it's that we have a crisis precisely because we have totally lost the plot about what the hell the present is, you know. I actually think the the reason why is because we're at the beginning of history. There's some philosophies that go around saying, oh, it's the end of history. It's the clash of civilizations. The Soviet Union collapsed, and now it's just going to be different ideologies fighting each other in a kind of 
Olympics, you know, or some kind of postmodern pastiche, right? I think this is the beginning of history because this is the moment at which human beings, no matter who they are, where they are, make decisive contact with non-humans. It's like kind of the aliens have landed, only they turn out to be fish and dolphins and microphones and lumps of plutonium, right? Why is this, why is this the beginning of history? Is this an awareness? Well, is it's, this a, it's, a mindset change? It's not just a mindset change, it's a sort of reality shift because we now know that human beings are intricately related with non-human beings. We know that there's viral code insertions in our DNA that make us do things, right? All the way down to that level, there are symbionts in our system, there are bacteria in my stomach. The reason why I can even be moving my lips in this semi-inane way is because there are these energy cells in my cells, which are basically bacteria. They're hiding in my cell because of the ecological catastrophe that they caused, the one we call oxygen. We know all this, right? And whether we are hard-headed theists who believe in belief in this kind of holding-on way, or whether we're hard-headed atheists who also believe in belief that way and think belief is holding on very tight to something, something has shifted. And even Pat Robertson and Richard Dawkins, you know, who are both kind of, they sort of summoned each other into being. Even those guys have to put sunblock on their head because the ozone layer is thin or there's too much ultraviolet light or there's too much heat because of global warming. No matter what you believe about belief anymore, there is this... 100,000-year timescale we have to deal with, which isn't the apocalypse. I mean, the idea that the world might be coming to an end, it's already ended. This is the afterlife. This is the, the world ended in 1790, and then just to make sure we got the point, it ended in 1945 when the gadget was exploded at Trinity. Um, the idea of a background of kind of neutral, non-human blair against which humans have meaning evaporates when you start directly interfering in Earth's crust, right? There's no background anymore, therefore there's no foreground, right? That's environmental awareness all of a sudden. That's this uncanny sensation of what the philosopher Heidegger calls angst, where all of a sudden everything you, in your world goes totally, horribly meaningless, like junk. I, I'm a spokesperson for the kind of weird, slightly evil, unreality feeling that happens in ecological awareness. Most people want to delete that. They want to say, now we're in an authentic moment where we truly recognize what's really important. The thing is that the first thing that happens when you go into an ecological age, I think, is a feeling of your reality just melted, right, in more ways than one, right? The, the ice cap is melting and your concept is melting. Your concept of the ice cap is also melting. So we have to talk to that, right? We have to talk to the doubt, you know, and we have to talk to the feeling of unreality and we have to not push people. Instead you have to give people a sort of inner space sort of equivalent feeling of accepting something like global warming reality which would be an extinction because of course the point about this is we're going through the sixth mass extinction event. Five previous cataclysms on earth. This is the sixth one. Predominantly human caused. If you just tell people that they think that you're fighting their belief system you know instead you have to work on the how you know how do people believe you know so i think that's my contribution to this is kind of working on getting people over that that little edge of not accepting it because it's very i can only accept it for about one second a day 
to actually think of of the scale. Oh, the scale, yeah. And the res- anything, just anything. And the responsibility? The, and the responsibility. It, it's absurd, right? It's an absurd amount of responsibility. It's a responsibility based on just knowing something. I mean, say, for example, somebody's running out into the street and there's a 10-ton truck hurtling towards them and you just jump and save that person. You don't stand there normally and think, is this the right thing to do? I don't need to analyze it carefully. Is this person really in the street? You know, we need to have proof. There's no proof. that We only have statistical correlations, right? This is how the tobacco and global warming denial industries make their money, right? Because science just is correlation of statistics. You'll never get a direct proof of a cause. That's what scientific data is. And so quite rightly, the denier can say there's no direct link has ever been proved. You say, well, yeah, because David Hume blew that up. Basically, all we have are billiard balls that hit other billiard balls, and they keep seeming to do it, but we can't really truly know that it's going to happen again exactly the same way. Science, yeah? God bless it. So we can't have science be totally responsible for telling us what we need to hear because scientists are paid to be hesitant. They're paid to say, look, I don't really, we don't fully know. It gives people a little bit of a sliver of an edge of like, oh, then maybe it's not real. Global warming science is based on unverifiability, right? I mean, the whole point is that once you save that guy who's about to be hit by the truck, you can never check to say, well, would he have really been hit by the truck if I hadn't saved him? You just do it, right? Or you could stand there and say, okay, I know I should save the guy, but why? He's my cousin, he's my grandfather, he's my sister's doctor's hamster's niece's vet's paediatrician. You can widen the circle of self-interest as big as you want, but because no one is meaningfully related to you 24,000 years out, that's not going to work, right? You just jump into the street and save the guy for no reason. And in the process of doing that, you think to yourself, this is not my beautiful street, this is not my beautiful guy, this is not my beautiful saving act of amazingness. Everybody's become, yeah, David Byrne in Talking Heads in Once in a Lifetime. Everybody's got that uncanny sensation of, oh, we suddenly found ourselves in the midst of our world, and it's not really our world, and oh, weird. Well, it seems like if you have a physicalist attitude towards the world, this becomes very, well, it's watery. It's difficult to pin down, like, okay, what's the problem, and why should we care? Right, right, why should we care? Yeah, right, why should we care? Well, that's the thing, you see, that we know how to solve the problem, and we know what it is. We know it's global warming, and we know we have to stop carbon emissions. The problem is not a problem of knowledge. The problem is us, right, in a very real way, not just the fact that we did all this stuff, but the fact that we don't have the motivation yet do you think we're even biologically capable of thinking in scales this big? Yeah, I truly do. Th- I think we're biologically capable of thinking in, in scales that are this big. I really do. I think we can certainly understand with our reason infinity, which is much bigger than any of these scales. I mean, this is Kant again, right? If you try to count up to infinity, you realize you can't do it. And then you realize, oh, but that is what infinity is. It's a number that I can't count up to. Oh my God, I've got it. Even though I can't see it or visualize it, I can think it, right? If I can think infinity, I can so totally think 100,000 years. You have the magic power. But again, the problem is not so much our reason. Mm-hmm. 
it's our motivation for connecting to it. Ah, because, so maybe the better question is not can we think on these scales, but can yeah, we feel on these scales? Right, can we feel on these scales? Because the thing is, data correlates together. That's the Hume thing, that's the scientific thing, right? But you never actually see cause and effect. What's cause, what's effect? There's a gap, mm -hmm. right? There's a crack in the universe. And so the question is, can you somehow feel the what's beyond that crack, right? It's like being stick people in a stick people world, knowing that there's a 3D world, right? But how do you feel that 3D world? Also, it's like saying to somebody, just go and jump into this huge Arctic ocean because reason is extremely cold and it's extremely a little bit toxic to humans. I mean, there are some things that reason can come up with, like nuclear bombs and cigarettes and Vicodin, that are very destructive to human. Hu reason is not necessarily human. Reason doesn't necessarily seem reasonable. Right. Right, because it doesn't right. answer what is good. It, it, it might actually be very unreasonable from that point of view. It might be a kind of nightmare abyss, right? This is the point, right? This is why we realize we're in a nightmare. We know about atoms. We know about bombs. This is why we got into this ecological problem. The problem lies within reason somewhere, you know. Because it seems it, like there's something very deep and fundamental here. Like, yeah. this is a moment maybe where we start to look at reason mm. as the problem, in a way? Yes. Or as a causal factor right. in the problem? Right, it's part of... It's, it's we not, always yes. thought it was a solution? Absolutely. It's, it, it's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it, because it's speaking to how reason is not outside of reality. It's an aspect of reality. It's how humans, or possibly anything with a nervous system, or anything at least with a brain is able to relate to things. So fundamentally, it's a problem of my relationship with whales, dolphins, trees, tobacco, mm -hmm. other people. So the problem of reason is a kind of problem of interrelationship and ecology from that point of view. Because this crack in the real is a crack due to the fact that there's this giant ocean of reason behind my head that I carry around like an invisible balloon of infinity. We have this infinite inner space, you know, like Hamlet says, I could be bound in a nutshell and count myself the king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams, right? We could get along with ourselves and our capacity to think in this cold, totally icy way if we weren't freaked out by the coldness. So how do we acclimatize ourselves to this coldness? That's why my latest way of putting it is I'm calling it dark ecology. I think that we need to tune into the depression and the melancholia and the uncanny darkness that is just like the chocolate wrapping around the sadness, which is like the liquid center of where we need to be at. It's just coexisting for no reason. But, but like the chocolate coating around it is shame and guilt and horror and disgust and, you know, yeah. So I don't want to eat that, <laughs> you know. If, if we're going towards this... How do we get questions of value there? Like, right. why get to that point if it feels like when you're at that point? Yeah. Like, what is better right about on. being at that point? Right on. Well, what's better about it is that you are already at it, whether or not you pose questions of value. Yeah. Whether or not you recognize it, whether or not you feel that it's valuable to coexist with other beings, you do coexist with other beings. So I'm a great believer in starting where you are, right? And I think that where we are is on Earth with billions of other life forms and non-life forms, right? And I think that 
that in itself is a kind of value. I mean, this is sort of where... So life, is that our, our floor level of, of value? Here? No, I would say coexistence. Coexistence. Right. I, I think because life is a very dodgy concept for lots of different reasons. I mean, what counts as life? What counts as non-life? Endless interminable debates happen in that region all the time. What we really need to be doing is thinking about coexistence beyond life. You've thrown anthropocentrism and biocentrism out the right. window. Right on. <laughs> Both of them. Right, right on. Both, totally, because it, to me, that uh, that's amazingly... Thank you for that, because to me, they're both two sides of the same coin, that there's a value over here and everywhere else that is, is defined as not being there. But since that becomes unthinkable when you start to think about interrelationships between beings, any kind of centrism doesn't work anymore, because what we're dealing with is a is a system that has no centre or edge. There's no centre to the life thing. I call it the mesh. Th this idea of a intricately knotted surface that has no centre. And there's no edge either. Like, OK, the biosphere. But the biosphere is enabled by the sun, which is enabled by the solar system, which is enabled by the galaxy. I mean, there's no edge to this. Right, right so it makes no sense to draw yeah. the ring around it makes the no sense. life. Right on. So all of a sudden it makes no sense. Since it makes no sense, getting back to your question, which is very hard for me to do, terrible digressive guy, <laughs> mo motor mouth. Getting back to this question of value, value comes out of coexistence for no reason. Your anxiety precisely is, what's the reason, right? We're all thinking that right now. Why do I care? You know, that's the anxiety. Right. And that is precisely the problem. The solution is coexistence is already its own value. Just like in the same way you can kind of get ethics from beauty, from Kant's point of view. I can't eat the Mona Lisa, because if I do, it's not the Mona Lisa anymore, it's me. So I can't enjoy it. I have to coexist with it, which means non-violence. So this experience of beauty is a kind of non-violent, allowing something to exist. Then everything becomes political, because it's like, what do I allow to exist, and what do I exercise my need to manipulate? And now all of a sudden it's very irritating because we have to consider frogs, monkeys, polar bears. It makes me think of Jainism in a very yeah. extreme way. But then if you're sort of at that point, yeah. you can accept that kind of coexistence, but there's yeah. still a real uh, subjective quality of perception still. So like, if the environment is, is changing, is that bad anymore? Even the thought why should I care in that rigorous, cynical way, which I'm not saying you're, you believe, but you're voicing it there, which is why the hell should I even care? Even that is having an effect at this level, right? So, for example, I drive a Prius. I know it's not going to save Earth, but it's probably better than not driving a Prius, and it's much better than cynically attaching wheels to my leaf blower and driving it around as a kind of ironic, bitter statement as to the impossibility of saving Earth. I know that big corporations need to get with the program, but that doesn't sort of let me off the hook. You know, I'm a big enemy of cynicism. I think our problem of our last 200 years has been a problem of increasing cynicism. And cynicism is defeated by hypocrisy, which is the feeling of being unable to rise above your own stupidity in some way. You can't get out of the loop. There's no place outside of reality to judge it from, cynically, because you're in it, because you are it. So even the cynic, from that point of view, is a kind of hypocrite. 
because the cynic believes that if he vomits disgustingly enough, somebody might change their mind, right? If I just am so sick and fed up with things, maybe it'll spark something in somebody. In other words, the cynic has some kind of hope. Yeah, there's, right? there's a closet optimism. So the cynic is a hypocrite about his hypocrisy. I'd rather be a straightforward hypocrite than a hypocritical hypocrite. Now we've gotten rid of cynicism because there's now only two options. There's hypocrisy or hypocritical hypocrisy. But that's still a sort of assuming that there's like a better thing we're striving towards, right? But if you if you well, just took no, the notion we, that we, like... we don't, you see. We, we can't know that. What we can know instead is that there are these coexistence. There are these beings like Bougainvillea and frogs. And we just love them. We're not doing it anymore because of some reason. We're doing it because we just love them for no reason. I mean, ah. it doesn't make any sense to save frogs from a strictly evolutionary point of view. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense to do anything. We've, we've reached the point where our reason cognitively crushes any ethical kind of decision. So, so we need something else. We need something else, which, funnily enough, though, is discovered within the, the ocean of reason, you see, which is this unconditional coexistence. If you push it all the way down, you get to just coexisting with another being for no reason, and that is good enough. One teacher that I really like says, um, all the reasons in the world are not reason enough to love. You can come up with so many different reasons why, but in the end, none of them are as adequate to just giving someone a popsicle on a hot day because it's hot, you know? And that realization is occurring to people, I think, slowly but surely. They're realizing, wow, everything I do feeds back into the system because I'm inside it. Basically, there's no perfect anymore. There's just varying degrees of stupid and imperfect. So the next step for humans is to be cognitively really awake with an understanding that we're all clowns. It's very different from what we want it to be. What we want ecological awareness to be is to feel plugged into something bigger than me that will take all my problems away. What it is instead is intimacy. I think that's the problem with a lot of ecological propaganda, if you like. Often it's saying, if you just believe in this thing that's much bigger and more real than your puny little tiny thing, everything will be okay. And quite rightly, most people hear that as, this guy's trying to run me over with a tank. If instead we can just meet people and go, hey, how are you doing? And just kind of join them in a kind of unconditional act of coexisting, we will be performing the essence of ecological awareness there. So it seems like there's, there's a level of the good being a greater awareness of a need to coexist. And it seems like there's maybe an, I don't like the, the tone of the word acquiescence to the existence of things. No one does. We've all been done, had a number done on us by Hegel and then also Nietzsche. And we've all decided that acquiescing at the back of your head, what do you picture there? Some kind of weird Buddhist. That was their public enemy number one in that period, which is still our period, was this acquiescent person who just gives up. And we mustn't by all means not do that. The horror of just letting go, the total horror of not gripping onto things really tightly because heaven knows it could all disappear and it's all coming out of the void and I have to hold on to it. There's a certain hypocrisy there because that belief 
that we have to keep on keeping on is nihilism. This idea that there are these weird oriental people who just sit around like statues doing nothing and that's a weird spooky thing, they are like the nightmare image of what's already installed in Western philosophy, which is this idea that things just sort of happen for no reason. We already know that. All the nothingness stuff, we've got all of that down. What we need to do is acquiesce, actually, I think. I like how provocative it is. This idea of you just acquiesce to reality. James Strachey, the translator of Freud, says that life strives towards the quiescence of inorganic life, right? And quiescence, right, as in acquiescence, a kind of peacefulness. Life isn't peaceful. Life is inconsistency. To exist at all means to have a kind of little knot in your being that I call fragility, that you could fall apart at any moment because something in you doesn't make sense. Death is consistent. When I die, I become your memory of me and bits of clothing. I disappear into appearances. There's no gap anymore between those things and what I am or who I am. So existing means there's a gap in the world. So existing is intrinsically odd. I think there's a whole Groundhog Day situation going on where in modernity we're constantly trying to get on top of the problem, you know, but that is the problem. Ecology must mean making friends with death, you know, which means that you have to allow that things are fragile, which does mean acquiescing. You've already given up at some level, you know, you're not going to go on forever. We've talked about sort of the crisis of the present. We've talked about a paradigm shift that leads to a different way of thinking about the future. We've talked about why that's good. Where does this get us? It looks like not moving forwards anymore. But why does history have to be about moving forwards? You see, what Darwin actually blew up was teleology. The idea that things are linearly always pointing that way and that the point of them is to point that way. There's no point in me being white, right? Like, he writes The Descent of Man to argue against this view of humans as having race because there's a point to it. And his whole thing was, the reason why I'm white and I have reddish facial hair is because somebody thought it was sexy three million years ago, and they probably even didn't have a choice. And so there's no reason why. And then all the way down, sexual selection, because it goes all the way down to butterflies and beetles, there's no reason. And in fact, curiously, butterflies, therefore, this is just Darwin, he argues this, must have some sense of beauty. And maybe it's not more primitive than ours. Maybe complexity isn't the most important thing in the world. Maybe unconditional coexisting is. Because when the butterfly finds something beautiful, you know, who's to say that that's not just as profound as when I find the Mona Lisa beautiful? And also, my experience of the Mona Lisa is very simple. I can't isolate any element of the Mona Lisa that's beautiful. It's just a quantum. It goes pow. So there's simplicity because it's one right? When the butterfly has that, that's probably exactly the same. So I think complexity, we're excited about it because it kind of makes us think, oh my gosh, maybe we could square the circle. Maybe we could have extreme power and an extreme feeling of rightness about our power at the same time. Maybe we can get rid of this anxiety that we have. But the trouble with it is, it's so teleological. And like I say, Evolution just isn't. It, I mean, I'm not a more complex in a way than a protozoan. I'm just another sort of blair of the genomic 
kind of mutation that is always random with respect to current need. So there's no teleology there. The DNA isn't trying to be better. It's just the case that if you have it and you're not dead and you could have sex with something that's kind of almost like you, they can keep your DNA. There's this lameness about evolution, which I find deeply attractive. It has nothing to do with striving forwards into the more and more perfect. Are you optimistic that we can actually, like, as a society, get to the point yeah. where we think like that? Yeah, I am. Because I think that we know that reason is infinite. That might be also a crushing thought, but that crushing might also result in us hurting each other less. So either way, I think it's going to be okay. But so you don't foresee some sort of worst-case scenario where yeah, we no, mismanage think, things in such a way that... Yeah, I think all that stuff... I think what's more likely is that it's going to be a very boring, slightly painful, to say the least, few hundred years with no huge apocalypses happening and no obvious saviour and no obvious sudden solution to everything. And that's what paradigm shifts really are. It's when your whole world evaporates, you know, so you have no measuring stick. You can't know anymore what counts as an amazing revelation. Does, does the conversation matter in that case? Yes, it does matter hugely. What else is there to do? You know, if you're in the middle of a giant war zone of reality with bits of dead finger lying around and zombies walking through, and what else can you do but have some kind of support group where you just raise each other's consciousness about what the hell is happening and try not to go too berserk? Do you think that's something that we need to make happen? Or is that something that just organically happens? Or is that something that's always no, in a moment of need, happening? there needs to be some conscious input. That's what's boring about it. To actually try to make a conversation? Yeah, there needs to be some... Con that's why I'm happy with what you're doing, because, I mean, consciousness sucks. Let's face it. Acting out is so much more pleasurable than being conscious. And going, okay, I know where this is going. I'm going to refrain. I'm going to think about it. It's so much more pleasant to roll down the window of your car flip the bird and, you know, with the road rage, yeah. But you see, that just reproduces the problem. So there has to be some conscious input. We can't just do it on autopilot. It's not just going to emerge out of nothing. We've got to deliberately decide, like you did, hey, I think I should interview this weirdo in Davis and we should have this conversation. And, and, and somehow that's part of, like, the actual intention of that is in itself a kind of entity that has a very powerful effect in the world, you know, because it's, it's actually creating a moment at which there is some kind of promise that at least we're going to try not to ignore each other or hurt each other for a few more minutes. We don't necessarily even have to figure anything out. We just have to coexist in an intelligent way with some irony, some humour, and some slight refraining and then it all becomes magic. Oh my God. That seems to be a common reaction we're having to listening to some of this raw audio, but this was a particularly overwhelming conversation. Yes. In the best possible way. So it's obviously going to get cut down massively, but I feel like we should say that it was 160 minutes prior to cutting. Yes. It was great. I mean, this was something that we both knew in advance this would be really different, and it felt like I needed the first hour to kind of get my brain going fast enough to even be able to ask respectably stupid questions, <laughs> you know? And I felt that as we went along, 
I started to get more and more of what Tim was saying. Right. As you folks are listening to this, hopefully I've edited it in such a way that the essence of that conversation comes through. Maybe we should just real quick run through the essence of that conversation, or at least our understanding of what the essence was. I think probably the place to start is that we've had all of these conversations thus far that really get into the idea of biocentrism and anthropocentrism. Which for Tim is, well, he, he calls them both two sides of the same coin, and he's thrown the coin out. Yeah. Because they both imply a center. And in his mind, there is no center. Life ceases to be a really meaningful category of analysis. Right. Because it's so integrally connected to all of these things that we wouldn't call alive. He throws out the idea of, of nature at all when he's talking about the sense of oneness. There's no comfort necessarily in being one with everything else. This isn't like you go back to your roots and you get to be one with nature and feel some assurance there. No. This is like you are connected to everything else in a way that is very strange and not reassuring. Mm -hmm. Did you find his argument for feeling that way, was that compelling for you? It, it was compelling, but I think it is, at the same time, I think it is an emotional response. I mean, it's uncomfort. It, that is inherently an emotional response. But uh, can you imagine being... And actually at one with everything is, is incorrect because you are still a discrete component. So it's more like knowing that you're connected to knowing everything. Knowing that you're connected to everything. But knowing and that, that you have no idea how that system works. Right. And maybe that's where and the that's weirdness where I think comes where, in. Right? Where weirdness comes in. Yeah. Yeah. It's out there, but you can't know it. But you know it's out there and that makes you uncomfortable. Just saying that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, like as as we talk over this interview. There are a lot of ideas that seem like they always float in tension. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of amazing challenges here. I don't really know where we go from this alone. And I don't think I was ever quite clear on that. Do we all acquiesce to this sort of coexistence with other things? How is that not just resignation? Why is one state better than another? I think he was using acquiescence in a, in a different way. I don't think for him it had the connotations of giving up. Maybe it did. Cut that. Never mind. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I, don't know. I don't know actually know how to get there, how to, how to do that. I actually feel like some of this stuff should be included. <laughs> it probably should because we don't know how to talk about this. Right. And there's a lot for us to think over. Yeah. I mean, we knew going in that this was going to be one of the most challenging conversations we had. Absolutely. And it was. <laughs> that was definitely proven correct. Yeah. Um, you know, I listened to a little bit of this yesterday, and I listened to all of it today. I've been reading one of his books, and I'm getting there, but I'm still not, I'm still not there. Are these ideas that are actually beyond the common language. Like, I feel that our incompetence in discussing his conversation almost reflects that we don't quite have the language to talk about these concepts. So I would really like to see a conversation on the site around this one. Yes, More sure. than any others so far. This is going to take the brain trust. Folks, we need you in our brain trust. You probably don't need us in your brain trust. Probably not. <laughs> Actually, it's been amply proven at this point. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, next, we will be talking about education mm -hmm. with Lisa Petrades. Sounds good. So we'll be back soon.
That was Dr. Timothy Morton, recorded in Davis, California, on May 29, 2012. And you're listening to The Conversation, a project by Angus Anderson and Micah Saul.